0: بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم ان الحمد لله نحمده ونستعينه ونستغفره ونعوذ بالله من شرور انفسنا ومن سيئات اعمالنا من يهده الله فلا مضل له ومن يضلله فلا هادي له واشهد ان لا اله الا الله وحده لا شريك له واشهد ان محمدا عبده ورسوله صلى الله عليه وعلى اله وصحبه وسلم تسليما كثيرا اما بعد my dear brothers and sisters, as alaikum warahmatullahi wa, rahmatullahi wa <laughs> So as I was mentioning after the salah, you know, as this is the final halakah, I was reviewing in my head what it's been like to, to review their biographies. And I don't think we're ever gonna see the likes of these people again. Obviously Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala knows best, but it doesn't seem likely that these were were luminaries that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala had specifically chosen to revive the deen, to protect this deen, and to leave as an example for those that came after them. And it's almost ideal that Imam Ahmad ibn Muhammad Allah was the last of them. Because he went through the most severest amount of challenges, but he also put forth the g- greatest contribution in terms of the preservation of hadith, as well as the preservation of the Muslim creed, as well as the aqidah. So it's like that sweet ending that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala talks about in the Quran, Misk. Now obviously these weren't the only Imams that Islam has known, but they were from the finest of them. So inshallah, we're going to begin with uh, the life of Imam Ahmed ibn Hanbal. Generally we've tried to take three to five stories from each Imam's life and you know expand upon those. But when I tried to do that with the life of Imam Ahmed, it was just too difficult. There were just way too many stories that had powerful lessons that I wanted to share. Not only for the sake of reminding myself, but I think that they'll be beneficial for the community as well. So there's going to be quite a few more stories that we'll be discussing tonight. Uh, and inshallah, may Allah grant us Tawfiq to go through all of them. So to get the details out of the way, Imam Ahmed ibn Hanbal's name, his name was Ahmed ibn Muhammad ibn Hanbal ibn Hilal al-Shaybani. He was born in the year 164, and he died in the year 261. Those dates are pretty much consensus, meaning that there's no difference of opinion unlike the dates of Imam Abu Hanifa and Imam Malik. His father, Muhammad, he was actually a soldier for the Abbasid uh, Caliphate and he eventually became a governor as well. His inheritance that he left behind for his family were two things. There were actually two houses. One was the house that Imam Muhammad used to live in, him and his family. And then the second, was a house that they had left as another property, meaning that they used to get income from. Now, the reason why that's significant is because Imam Ahmad rahimahullah, he chose to live the life of, I don't want to use the term extreme, but a very, very, you know, proactive ascetic. Mean that anything that he could possibly do to get detached from this dunya, Imam Ahmad rahimahullah, would actively try to do. So when he knew that his father had left behind this house for them, he almost made the intention at that time that as long as it's enough for my family and I, I'm not going to work anymore. And I'm just going to dedicate my life to studying Islam and doing as much as I possibly can. And you'll notice that, mashallah, tabarakallah, he actually goes very, very far in that. He goes very, very far in that. So Imam Ahmad, he begins studying Islam, Relatively early, fifteen years old, at the uh, in the year 179, which also was the year that Imam Malik رحمه passed away. So you're noticing like a recurring theme: one Imam is passing away, or something drastic is happening in the Ummah, and then Allah سبحانه ta'ala is sending like another great Imam to like step up to the to the plate at that time. So as soon as Imam Malik رحمه dies, Imam Ahmad began studying at that age. From you know the virtues of Imam Ahmad is that he made Hajj five times in his life. Out of all the Imams, it seems that he did it the most. But what sticks out about it is that he made three of those journeys on foot from Baghdad. So, not walking. Now, why did Imam Ahmed do that? There's two possible points of discussion. Number one, as we mentioned, he chose to live a life of asceticism. So he didn't own much, nor did he have much money. And you see that this comes later on into play, that he starts to become a hindrance and his path to seeking knowledge that he doesn't have money. But he's put himself in a conundrum that not only is he willing to, help accept, uh, willing to accept help from people, but he's not going to work either. So he's like, let me just rough it out. And then the other opinion was that Imam Ahmad actually believed in struggling in the way of Allah Subh'anaHu Wa Ta-A'la. So for himself, not on the people, for the th- people, he liked to make things easy as we discussed yesterday in his principles of fiqh. But for himself, If he could make things more difficult for himself, he would actually choose to do so because he believed there was a greater reward. He believed there was a greater reward. So he walked for Hajj, either due to the poverty or for the sake of the greater reward, or possibly due to both of them. Possibly due to both of them. Now, the first major story I want to share with you is how Imam Ahmad rahimullah excelled. How he excelled. Now, when we talk about excelling in the field of hadith, there are two phenomenal things that he was able to achieve. The other book that we use as a supporting text for this class is the book called The Four Imams by Sheikh Muhammad Abu Zahra. And in it he mentions that Imam Muhammad Rahimullah was possibly the first individual to collect a hadith from all of the quadrants of the Muslim Ummah. I Meaning that Imam Malik Rahimullah, when he compiled al-Mu'attah, he got the hadith from hijaz. So Mecca and Medina and that area he had downpacked. But in terms of the ahadith of Sham, the ahadith of Iraq, he didn't really have access to it. Whereas Imam Ahmad rahimahullah, he was able to travel around and gather ahadith from all of the quadrants. And that is why you'll we'll see later on in the discussion that Imam Shafi has with Imam Ahmad. That while Imam Ahmad is 27 years old at that time, he's asking Imam Ahmad, tell me which are the authentic ahadith from the non-authentic ahadith. Tell me what are the authentic hadith from Sham, and from Yemen, and from Hijaz, so that I may act upon them. This is what yash Shafi is telling Imam Ahmad. So that is his first form of excelling. He was able to gather the hadith from all of the quadrants. Ya rahmukallah. The second thing is the amount of hadith that Imam Ahmad rahimahullah knew. This is going to come as a surprise to people, but there are multiple narrations that say that Imam Ahmad rahimahullah had memorized, one million ahadith. Now you may think, where does this one million come from? Do one million ahadith actually exist? And the answer is no. When you look at you know, the issue of ahkam, you might find about 50,000 ahadith. You add aqeed and a bit too, more to it. All of it you're looking at, you know, 50 to 70,000 ahadith altogether from the Prophet So when we say one million ahadith, we're talking about the different chains of narrations. This is what Imam Ahmad had specialized in. So he d- had dedicated his life this. Now, how did this actually happen? And this is where we get the first quote. So Ibrahim Al-Harbi, one of the major imams of hadith of that time, he says of Imam Ahmad, I spent 20 years with Ahmad, night and day, in winter and in summer, in heat and in cold. And every day I saw him, he worked harder than the day before. He worked harder than the day before. Now, we live in a day and age where people are in love and infatuated with self-development. And this is phenomenal. But what often gets lost in this discussion is the Islamic component to self-development. When you look at the act of tawbah in Islam, we're leaving off a bad deed, replacing it with a good one. This is developing good habits. This attitude that Imam Ahmad has that make each and every day a better day than the day before. Right, Such a positive attitude to have, that imagine if we try to exemplify this in our own lives, how far he, we would come. And we see this, that as a young man, when he took this upon himself at a young age, look at how far he was able to come in his life. Look at what he was able to achieve. And I think this often gets forgotten, that aim big, achieve as much as you can in this dunya, excel in your field, become the best of the best. Not for the sake of the dunya, but for the sake of showing Ihsan to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, He's given you capability, He's given you intellect. What is preventing us from becoming the best of the best? It is our own lackadaisical approach, lack of self-confidence, and just not having lofty aspirations and goals for ourselves. So live each and every single day to the best of your ability. And yes, certain days will come where they will be terrible. You're not going to feel good. And certain days will come and you'll actually be You know, you'll fail that day. You will not achieve any of your goals. But as long as you continue to learn from your mistakes, and you continue to learn from the mistakes of others, that is how you will continue to grow. And that is what we want to strive for. That is what we want to strive for. Number two, Imam Ahmad's demeanor and his personality. So, I want you to think about the type of intellect it takes to memorize a million Hadith. You have to be a living, walking, breathing encyclopedia. Like you have to have, you know, a computer for a brain. Often what happens when people are very intelligent, they lack social skills, right? Their social skills are underdeveloped because their brain just functions in a completely different way. They'll naturally become introverted for the most part. And that is how Imam Ahmed was. And it's amazing the stories that you hear of how anti-humor Imam Ahmad was, right? We talked about al-Shafi last week, he had a real good sense of humor. Imam Ahmad, it's like he used to walk into a room, and like people would go silent. He was like, you know, the party pooper. He's like the guy that, you know, the one wants to hang out with. But Imam Ahmad, he didn't mind that. And I want to share multiple stories with you. So, one of the great scholars of hadith at that time was Yazid ibn Harun. And Yazid ibn Harun, he's teaching a hadith class, but he's joking with his students. Then all of a sudden, someone goes, <coughs> and Yazid, he looks around, who is this guy? And he looks and he's like, Ahmed ibn Hanbal. And he's like, had I known you were here, I wouldn't have joked and jested. Like that's what he did to the halakha. So people had to change their personalities around him. In another incident, once Imam Ahmad was attending Ismail ibn Ulayyah's study circle, some of his students laughed. And Ismail ibn Ulayyah he became upset and said, do you laugh while Ahmed ibn Hanbal is here with us? Do you laugh while Ahmed is here with us? Like you could not laugh and joke around whatsoever. Now, the reason why I highlight this is because last week we talked about how Imam Shafiq he would go out of his way to entertain people, to engage people, to communicate with people. Imam Ahmed like trying to have a non-Islamic discussion with him is like talking to a wall. You might as well not have it. You're not going to get anywhere. And the reason why I mention both of them is because both of them are fine. Islamically speaking, our personalities are not meant to change, right? But rather they're meant to be enhanced. So if you're a silent person, then Islam embraces that and there's a place for it. And if you're a person that loves to engage and communicate and intermingle with people, then there's a place for that as well. And neither one is better than the other, nor should one person look upon the other for not having that skill. And I think often we put so much pressure on social engagement. That if someone doesn't want to socially engage, oh that's a bad thing. Or if someone you know likes to, to joke around and in their halakas, then that's a bad thing as well. But there's always a balance, as long as you stay within that balance, it's okay to have either personality, it's okay to have either personality. Imam Ahmad's relationship to the Quran and his ibadah, and his ibadah. So His relationship to the Qur'an, and I I think we'll just take the the quote as a whole. Imam Ahmad's son, uh, Abdullah, he says that my father used to pray 300 rakahs per day. And then after his flogging, and you'll see that his major trial that happened, he became weak, and he used to pray 150 rakahs per day. So this is between, throughout the whole day, including his Qiyam layl and his sahajud, his duha prayers, all these prayers. He's praying 150 rakahs to 300 rakahs per day. Consistently, my father used to finish the Qur'an every seven days. And he used to do this in two ways. One, in reading the Qur'an during the daytime and reflecting upon it. So he says that his father used to reflect upon the whole entire Qur'an during the daytime. And then at night time, he would recite the whole entire Quran in seven days. So he's doing two khatams of the Quran per week, which is absolutely phenomenal. But then what gets really interesting is Imam Ahmad rahimahullah's relationship with fasting. That when we get to his trial, you see that the way Imam Ahmad rahimahullah like viewed the world was a very peculiar, I don't want to say strange because strange looks bad, but peculiar, very unique. That when he's being punished and persecuted, Imam Ahmad is fasting at that time. Why is he fasting while he's being flogged? When he has every excuse not to fast and to break his fast. Because he says, I want my ajr to be increased during this time of hardship. Like, just think about that perspective. At time of hardship, people are focusing on how do I survive? How will I get out of this hardship? Imam Ahmad's like, this hardship is here to stay. There's nothing that I can do to change it. I might as well magnify and increase my ajr. So his son says that my father used to go for long periods of time where he would fast every single day. Then he would go for long periods of time where he wouldn't fast. But even then he would never miss two types of fasting, the Mondays and Thursdays, and then the 13th, 14th, and 15th of every month. He would never give this up. And for me, you know, when I, I look at this, Like there's so much wisdom behind fasting in terms of teaching us tolerance and restraint and empathy and gratitude. Like there's a reason why it's legislated in our faith, particularly in the month of Ramadan. But I think if we're trying to develop good habits for ourselves and to make sure that we are stronger than our own desires and stronger than our own carnal instincts, we have to try to do that, right? And do whatever you're capable of. If you're able to do just Monday, that's great. If you're able to do just Thursday, that's great. If you can't do either of those, then at least aim for the 13th, 14th, and 15th of every month. And these are good habits to develop. And Imam Muhammad is exemplifying that. But I think out of all these things, his relationship with the Quran is what strikes me the most. Right? To have two khatams of the Quran per week, one in contemplation and one in recitation. And he would actually put his students down that wouldn't have a relationship with the Quran. So if you didn't memorize the Quran, sorry, you're not studying hadith with me or if he saw them over-engaged with hadith, he would tell them, when will you make time for the Qur'an? You're spending all your time with hadith, when will you make time for the Qur'an? Now, why this point is highlighted is because Imam Ahmad it's understood he had a relationship with hadith, he's done a huge service to hadith. But we often forget that how Imam Ahmad was able to stay steadfast in his trial was due to his sticking to the Qur'an and the Sunnah. Right? The Prophet ﷺ clearly tells us that if you hold on to the Quran and the Sunnah, you will never go astray after me. And that is what Imam Ahmad rahim Allah exemplified. That if you hold on to the two sources of legislation in Islam, you will not go astray. You will not go astray. So, how did Imam Ahmad start giving fatwa and what, what happened? What was the story behind it? Well, Imam Ahmad, Allah, as he grew older, he became more famous and more renowned. As he traveled from land to land, people wanted to study hadith with him. But he would refuse to answer people's questions. People would ask him a question, he would say, go and ask someone else. Do you have such and such person in your town? Go and ask him. The only time Imam Ahmad would answer a question is if no one else was available, or no one else in that town was capable of answering. And that is the only time that Imam Ahmad would do so. And this happened in one particular incident in, in Hajj. That Imam Ahmad was 34 years old. People have questions about Hajj, about the monastic, about the rituals. No one else is around and no one else is willing to answer. Then Imam Ahmad took it upon himself to answer questions at that time. But officially when Imam Ahmad took it upon himself, he took it upon himself at the age of 40. That at that time he's going to start teaching halakat, start giving lectures, start teaching a hadith, and start giving fatawa at that time. Why did he choose the age of forty? Multiple reasons. Number one, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala calls it the age of pinnacle of our of our of our lives in the Quran. And number two, the Prophet received revelation at that time. So it was a very significant moment. Now Imam Ahmad's love for the Sunnah was phenomenal. And I genuinely believe when a person loves the Sunnah of the message of Allah sallallahu alayhi wa Allah Subhanahu wa Ta'ala shows you know miraculous things. From the miraculous things that we find, is that Imam Ahmad was born in the month of Rabia al-Awwal and he died in the month of Rabia al In fact, his date of death was the 12th of Rabi al-Awwal. Now, I'm not going to get into the whole issue of the, the Mawlid of the Prophet wasalam, but the more common and popular opinion is that the Prophet born, uh, was born and died on the 12th of Rabia al-Awwal. Now, how far did Imam Ahmad go in practicing the Sunnah? He was almost a literalist when it came to practicing the Sunnah. One time he got hijama done, he got cupping done to himself, and he intentionally paid the man one dinar. The man, is, the man says, this is like overcompensation for what I have done, and then he says, I heard from so-and-so who narrates from so-and-so who narrates from so-and-so, that when the Prophet had hijama done, he paid the man one dinar. Right? That is how far he would go in following the sunnah of the Prophet Due to Imam Ahmad's personality of being introverted, one of the things he really, really struggled with was the fame that he achieved. Meaning that everywhere that he would go, he had become famous and he would become recognized. And he used to actively make dua to Allah, that, oh Allah, take this test away from me. He used to say frequently, blessed are those whom Allah permits to go unremembered. Meaning that unrecognized amongst the people, they can walk through and back and no one recognizes them. This is what Imam Ahmad rahimahullah, used to pray for. Now, what we learn from the Sunnah of the Prophet wasalam, is that whoever humbles himself for the sake of Allah, what does Allah do? Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala raises their status. So look at what happens when you're a student of Imam Ahmad. Uh, Al-Hussain ibn Hassan al-Razi, he says, we were at a grocery store in Egypt, and the stall owner received us very well, and we fell into conversation. Then he asked me about Ahmad ibn Hanbal, I told him I have studied under him. When I tried to pay him, he refused my money, saying, I do not take a price for my goods for someone who knows Ahmad ibn Hanbal." Like, I look at this story, I'm like, what generation are these people living in? Where the scholar has so much respect across the world that if you studied with him, free groceries for you, right? And, and I found this story phenomenal. And you'll see that this is like a recurring theme in the life of Imam Ahmad. Whatever Imam Ahmad ran away from, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala gave him so much of it, and this was like a constant test almost, that Allah, I don't want this, why do you keep giving it to me? But Allah kept showing His mercy and His bounty and His favors. And you'll see how Imam Ahmad reacted to it. One of the beautiful stories from the life of Imam Ahmad is how his students were. So after his persecution was finished, Imam Ahmad went back to teaching. And at that time, his numbers of students grew exponentially. Everyone wanted to see who was the man that defended the creed of the Salaf. Who was the man that stood up to three different Khulafa that were persecuting him. Who was this man? Ahmed ibn Muhammad. So Imam al dahabi he mentions, and Ibn Al-Qayyim, that 5,000 people started attending the halaqat of Imam Ahmad. Now that one of itself is not the big achievement. The big achievement was the Tarbiya that he had given his students that out of these five thousand, only five hundred are writing down a hadith. The rest of them are just there to observe his character, and to observe his akhlaq and to see what can we learn from it. And this brings us back to the story of the the mother of Imam Malik that she clearly told Imam Malik that when you study with Rabi'ah, study from his akhlaq before you study from his knowledge. And this is something that's lost in our day and age. Now, particularly with students of knowledge, we want to go out and study knowledge before we study akhlaq. When the akhlaq comes before the knowledge. And this is something we need to bring back, the emphasis on the akhlaq, the emphasis on good character, the emphasis on gentleness, and being softer with one one another. And doing things according to the sunnah, you take with the right hand, you give with the right hand. Right? All of these small, simple things, bring them back, they're a part of our tradition. And this is part of our identity, and it's things that we are meant to be proud of, meant to be proud of. Now one thing I'll share with you, which is outside the scope of our discussion. So the author of this book is Sheikh Salman al-Awda. And Sheikh Salman al-Awda, he mentions something here, which almost seems as if he's sharing his own experience, and I want to share this with you. He says, most famous people find their fame a mixed blessing. They have to deal with undeserved praise, as well as unfounded criticism. Both of them which take their toll on a person's peace of mind. This gets worse with age when a person wants to focus more on spiritual things. So now the reason why I, show this, or I share this is because we live in a day and age where everyone wants to be famous. You're on Snapchat, you're on Instagram, you're on Facebook, how many followers do you have? The more followers you have, the more repute you have. But what people fail to understand is that having followers and having an online following and having a social media following is a blessing and a curse at the same time. The blessing is that if you're able to use it in Khair, you're easily getting, you know, amounts of Ajr. You tell people to make SubhanAllah, everyone's gonna say SubhanAllah, you're getting the Ajr for all of them. But at the same time, there's a huge negative aspect to it as, as well. Where people will praise you for things that you're not worthy of praise of. And people will criticize you For things that you didn't even do. People will gossip, people will spread rumors. And as you age, you realize how futile this is. That as you age more, you want to focus on your relationship with Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. You want to focus on good things. But when you have so many people looking up to you, so many people following you, you lose that peace of mind. And and from what I understood, it's like the personal experience that Shaykh Salman al uh, Awdah is sharing for himself, what he's sharing for himself. Now, Imam Ahmad's awkward personality continues. right? So Imam Ahmad, Allah, his relationships were very like black and white. There's very little area for gray. So as rahimahullah, one of his teachers, he, saw, he looked at Imam Ahmad, and he saw that Imam Ahmad Allah, is poor, he's wearing the same clothes day in and day out, even though he keeps himself very clean mashallah, but extremely poor, eating like the humblest of foods, going days you know, w- without things. In fact, you know, Imam Ahmad Allah, he made a promise to a Shafi'i that I will come and visit you in Egypt. What prevented him from visiting him? He didn't have the money to do so. So when Imam Shafi'i sees him in this predicament, he thinks, how can I help Imam Ahmad out? So one of the things that Imam Ahmad had conveyed to Imam Shafi'i is that he wants to meet this great scholar of hadith, Abdul Razak sanani from Yemen. So he tells Imam Ashafi, you know, this is my ambition. I want to go to Yemen to study Hadith from him. So Imam Ashafi, rahimahullah, we mentioned that you know um, he had gone to a Najran and he's working in Najran at that time, which is a part of, of Yemen at that time. And he finds about, about a posting that is in the area of Abd razak al-Sanani, where Imam Ahmad can be uh, a judge in that area. So Ashafi, he tells Ahmad, Ahmad, I have some good news for you. I found uh, you know, uh, an opening for a judge in uh, Abdul Razak al sananis area and they pay very well. You get to serve the deen. You get to study with Abdul Razak al sanani Win-win situation. You would think that Imam Ahmad, he'd be over the moon, he'd be like, Alhamdulillah, Jazakallah Khair for doing this for me. His response, if you ever offer this to me again, I will stop seeing you. That was his response. <laughs> now why, was, why, why did he do that? Well, as you'll come to see, he has a very particular methodology of going through hardship, but he also has a very strict stance on government money. He will like do anything as much as he can to stay away from it. So, what is his stance on strictness and his, you know, relationship with Abdulaziz Sanani? So now, in his third Hajj, Imam Ahmed Ibn Hanbal is on Hajj with Yahya Ibn Ma'in, and this is like one of the things that. SubhanAllah, I, I don't want to say I'm envious of, but I don't know what other word to use. Like Imam Ahmad, he was hanging out with like the cream of the crop of the Ummah. Like Imam al is his teacher and close friend, Abdul Razak al-San'ani is there, Yahya ibn Ma'een and Ali ibn al are part of his crew. I was like, man, this is amazing. So he's in Hajj with Yahya ibn Ma'een. And as they're on Hajj, Yahya, uh, you know, uh, Imam Ahmad is telling Yahya again, after Hajj, let's go to Yemen and study with Abdul al sanani So now, they're making tawaf, what happens? Abdul al sanani is making tawaf. Yahya ibn Ma'in, he's like amazing, Ahmad ibn Muhammad wants to see him, wants to study with him. Yahya goes up to him while Ahmad is there, starts talking to him and he says, Assalamu alaykum, ya Shaykh, you know, I'm Yahya ibn Ma'een and I'm with Ahmad ibn Ambal. And Abdul Razak's like, MashaAllah, I've heard so much about Ahmad ibn, I can't wait to meet him. And he's like, Shaykh, can we make an appointment with you tomorrow so we can come and study hadith with you? And you know, Yahya is like, MashaAllah, I just did an amazing thing. Ahmad's gonna love me. He goes back to Ahmad. What is Ahmad's response? What is wrong with you? Why would you do that? Why is he saying that? Because he says that I made intention that after Hajj, I'm going to walk to Yemen. And I want Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala to reward me for each and every single step. And there's much more reward in study with him in Yemen than there is over here. So Imam Ahmad, he didn't actually go and study with him the next day. He waited till after Hajj to travel to Yemen to study with Abdul Razak sanani And this is like the type of hardship that Imam Ahmad used to go through. This is the type of hardship he would put himself through. Now, when he gets to Yemen, Abdurrazak notices that Ahmed has come with a lot of stuff with him. Like, I remember, Ahmed is very, very poor, but he arrives into Yemen and he has a lot of like luggage. It's like, what's going on? Why do you have like, you know, three horses and eight camels all carrying this stuff? So Imam Ahmed says that, you know, this is, this is just something personal for me. Abdul Razak digs around and he finds out that on his way to Yemen, Imam Ahmad, he went broke. He had no money left. So he eventually found a caravan that needed help. So he told the caravan that, look, I'll take your stuff to Yemen for you in exchange for some financial compensation. And that is what they agreed upon. So Imam Ahmad was responsible for delivering these uh, commodities to Yemen when he arrived. So Abdul Razak, when he finds this out, he tells Ahmad that, look, you know, this is an area where you're not going to find much livelihood, there's nothing that you can do here. So why don't, you let me help me out? why don't you let me help you out? Let me just give you a little bit of money, you can go back to your homeland, you can stay over here, you know, do as you please. Imam Ahmad, rahim Allah, he's like, Jazakallah khair, I appreciate it, but I'm in no need of it. I'm in no need of it. Stories get even more interesting. People find out about the poverty of Imam Ahmad. So one man makes an intention, and I want you to think about this. He says, whatever, you know, money I get of profit from my business, I'm going to give it to Imam Ahmad. I'm going to give it to Imam Ahmad. And I want to think about this. Who does this? Who says whatever money I make from my business, I'm going to give to one of the scholars? No one does this anymore. But Imam Ahmad had this exclusive position in the society, that people saw his poverty, but they also saw his contribution to the ummah. And this is like the driving force that I wanted to mention over here, it had nothing to do with Imam Ahmad as an individual per se. That is not Imam Ahmad because of Imam Ahmad. It's Imam Ahmad because of the contribution and the struggles he's making for the ummah that people are willing to support him. Now why I mention this over here is because as human beings, we're constantly going to be looking for support. We want people's financial support, people's you know, moral support, people's like, human resource support. We want people to back us up. But what needs to be understood that in order to achieve that from the people, you have to develop credibility with them, you have to show them hard work, you have to show them dedication. And when you can show them that with results, people will support you, people will support you. And that is why this man, he had made an intention that when I get this money, I'm going to give it to Imam Ahmad. Same scenario, the man comes and he's like, Yeah Imam Ahmad, I made this intention that if I made this money, I was going to give you all the profits. Allah blessed me with 10,000 gold coins. 10,000 gold coins. This is for you. Imam Ahmad's Jazakallah Khair. My family and I are sufficed. Now this happened in front of his sons. His sons realized that they're literally having dates like every two or three days. How is my father saying that we're fine, we're struggling, we're barely getting by, you know, why is this, you know, happening? Why is this happening? So now, you'll notice that uh, a small dispute started happening between him and his sons. The dispute was that as the sons obviously get older, they're free to do whatever they want, right? His father's not going to interject in terms of the paths that they choose. They both, his son uh, Abdullah and his son Saleh, they choose to become judges inside of the Caliphate. What ends up happening is that as soon as Saleh became judge, and he was first, Imam Ahmad refused to eat in his house. He would not eat in his house. He's like, your money is tainted, and I cannot allow tainted money to go inside of me. Another time, Imam Ahmad was in need of something. So his son brought him whatever he needed, and he said, I can't accept it from you because your money is tainted. So much so that he eventually boycotted his children. Like Imam Ahmad was no joke. Like he took his deen very, very seriously. That he cut off his children because they did something, not that it was haram, but because they put themselves in a compromising situation. And Imam Ahmad felt that he had taught them better. He felt that he had taught them better. <laughs> There's another uh, story that I want to share with you just about Imam Ahmad's wealth, and then we'll move on to the, to the next topic. So, the last khalifa that Imam Ahmad dealt with, uh, Al-Mutawakkil, he was you know, probably the, 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 the best out of all of the khulafah that he's dealt with, and he realizes the mistakes that his predecessors have made. So, he called upon the nephew of Imam Ahmad, and he says, look, I recognize all the mistakes that my predecessors have made, and i want to make it up to ahmed ibn Hanbal. these are 10000 gold coins go and give them to ahmed ibn Hanbal and tell them and tell him that you know accept this from the from the caliphate to make up for all the misery that we've put him through ahmed refused he said i have no need for it so then the the nephew he says o father of abdullah meaning o abu abdullah take it from the commander of the faithful this is better for your standing with him if you refuse it I am afraid that he might become suspicious of you." Now you'll come to see his problem with the Caliphate, but basically he was a nightmare for, all, for the khulafa that preceded al- Al-Mutawakkil, and he actually developed a very bad relationship, that he got persecuted and imprisoned multiple times. So now when his nephew tells this to him, Imam Muhammad thinks, you know what, I don't want to go through that persecution again. I don't want to go through that persecution again. So he accepts the money. Now what does he do though? Then when his nephew left, he summoned his sons. He said, take like, the, the bag and stash it uh, under like, the, this, this private area. The next morning, in the middle of the night, when everyone was at home, everyone is awoken up and summoned back to uh, Ahmad's room. He told us that he could not sleep. He was distraught by the fact that he had received this money. So taking that money was causing him a lot of anxiety. And he says, uh, "We tried to tell him go to sleep. You can figure out what to do in the morning." So Imam Ahmad is like, "Fine. You know what? Let me not disturb my family." Next morning comes. What are we going to do? He summons his like helper. He has a, a mal- khair. Thank you very much. He has a helper by the name of uh, Abdus ibn, uh, ibn Malik. Yeah. He calls him and he says, "Come up with all of the names of the poor families." of all of the needy, and of all of the students of knowledge, from Baghdad to Kufa. And then he says, we went, meaning Abdus and Imam Ahmad they went to each and every single needy person, giving them 50, giving them 100, or even 200 gold coins. And we continued like this, until there was no money left. And then we even gave the money bag away in charity to an anonymous person. I want you to think about this. Like he had such a for government money. This is how far he is going. That even the bag that was left over is too tainted. You know, even the bag he gave away in charity. Even the bag he gave away in charity. So now, let's actually get into um, the actual trial. What was the actual trial? So now, in the year 198, a new khalifa is appointed in the uh, Abbasid Caliphate. He is known as al mamun And al mamun he is a highly educated man, but not in terms of religious sciences, more in the rational sciences. So he was really into Greek philosophy, and having it translated into Arabic. And that is what he would study. That is what he would study. Now, two heretical groups that existed during that time, one was the Jahmiyya, and the other one was the Mu'tazila and he heavenly aligned himself with the mu'tazila They were like the, I don't want to say the rationalists, but pseudo-rationalists of the Muslim ummah at that time. Because they claimed that they were rational, but the rationality led them away from Islam and not to Islam. <coughs> so Al-Ma'mun, as he's aligning this, he's developed a personal opinion, a personal doctrine. And that is that the Qur'an is created. Now this personal doctrine, he's made it, a public doctrine now. Now in the history of Islam, this concept of a public doctrine has not existed. And what we mean by that is that even when the Prophet sallallahu moved to Medina, the three Jewish tribes lived there, he did not impose Islam upon them. They were allowed to stay Jewish on their faith. Later on, as Islam continues to develop, the Muslim state continues to expand, the non-Muslims are allowed to stay upon their faith. <coughs> so now, for the first time, this is being imposed upon the Muslims that you have to believe the Qur'an is created. You have to believe that the Qur'an is created. Now let's go on a small tangent. When you look at the evolution, um, yeah, I will use the term evolution, because evolution can be good and bad. But if you look at the evolution of Christianity and Judaism, and and people that started to astray within Christianity and Judaism, when did that heresy begin? When they started to have the discussion, was the Bible and the Torah the spoken word of God? And it became relevant that the more they claimed that the the Bible was not the spoken word of God, and was rather something created, the more ability they had to reject the wordings and the meanings of the Quran. Because it's no longer spoken by Allah. This is the interpretation of a man who conveyed it to another man, and we are men as well, and we can do whatever we want. That is eventually what it leads to. So Imam Ahmad, he understands the danger of this heresy. And he understands that no matter what happens, he cannot allow this to become mainstream. Because if he allows it to mainstream, he is allowing the door of Islam, you know, changing drastically, to take place. So Imam Ahmad understood the drastic nature of it. So now, al mamun in the year that he dies, he puts two people in charge. These two individuals, they're like living shayateen. Like if you want to talk about living Iblis, these are like the two people. Number one, Ahmad ibn Abi Duad. and he is the chief justice, meaning the, the main head uh, judge at the time of al mamun The second is Ishaq ibn Ibrahim, and he is like, you know, the chief of police. So the chief of police and the judge completely bought out, completely in the pockets Uh, of the corrupt khalifa at that time. And he gives them a dying will. So now that he's dying, he tells them that, look, I'm going to pass away. The next person to become khalifa, he needs to keep you two in power. And your mandate is to test the people. Test these people. And anyone that fails the test and says that the Qur'an is the spoken word of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, then First, what's going to happen, they're going to be removed from any official positions. If they have any official positions in the Caliphate, they're being removed. Number two is that their testimony will not be accepted. They will clearly be branded as people whose testimony is not accepted. If they still persist and they continue, then they will be imprisoned. If they go even further and they still persist, then they shall be flogged. And hopefully by then they're assuming that people will give up their positions. Now, in the year 218, al mamun he is passing away. So now a, a new Khalifa is coming into uh, power. And major Imams are now brought into the courtyard. And they're being tested by Ishaq ibn Ibrahim, the chief uh, of police. <coughs> and, they're, and he's asking them, what do you think about the Qur'an? And they all said the Qur'an is the speech of Allah Subh'anaHu Wa Ta-A'la. So now, sorry, just to give you context, who's here? Well, you have Yahya ibn main there, you have Ahmad ibn Hanbal, you have another great muhadith by, uh, he has a famous book called at tabaqat He is in this gathering as well. So these are like, you know, major prominent scholars. They tried their best to get out of this scenario as best as they could. And you really see their creativity, right? Amazing creativity. So they are like, the Qur'an is the speech of Allah. That was the starting line that all of them spoke. But then the way they got out of it, Yahya ibn Mu'een's answer, I'll give you his answer. He says, the Qur'an, the Torah, and the Injil, and the Zabur, all four of these are created. What is he referring to? His fingers, right? That was his way out of it. Now, he copped out, right? He didn't give a straightforward answer. So now when Imam Ahmad's turn comes, I told Imam Ahmad he already had like this strong, strict personality, no messing around. He was like, the Quran is the speech of Allah. It was spoken by him, uncreated. Do with me as you please. Now how do you think the chief of police is going to react? He's like, everyone else, Captain, who are you? Who do you think you are to, to stand up against me? Interestingly enough, at that time, Nothing happened to Imam Ahmad. He is excused and pardoned. But, what did that lead to? As soon as Imam Ahmad's stance became public, scholars are empowered. They're emboldened to take the stance of Ahmad. So now we have three other people that are joining Imam Ahmad. From them is Muhammad ibn Nuh. And he's like the, the name that you should remember out of these. Remember Muhammad ibn Nuh. The other one was uh, Sajada, and I can't remember the fourth person's name, maybe I can find it. No, sorry, the, the third person was Umar al-Qawariri, and the fourth person was Hassan ibn Muhammad. So Ahmed ibn Hanbal, Muhammad ibn Nuh, uh, Ubaydullah ibn Umar al-Qawariri, and Hassan ibn Muhammad, these are the four individuals. So now, a second round of testing is done, and this time, before the second round of testing even begins, these four people are taken, and they're imprisoned, put into prison, set as an example, that if we don't deal with these people as an example, people are going to keep following them. One night in prison goes by, and two of them turn. Right? So you had Ubaidullah ibn Umar Al-Qariri, and Al-Hassan ibn Muhammad, the next day they're like, we've changed your opinion, the Qur'an is created, let us out. So now you're left with Muhammad ibn Nuh, and Ahmad ibn Hanbal. These are like the two vanguards of the Islamic creed. Now, when this incident happened, Imam Ahmad, he started to develop this resentment, like not only towards the people that are, are testing him, but even towards the, the other scholars. He's like, what is wrong with you people? Like Allah has blessed you with so much knowledge. If you're not going to stand up for what you believe, what is the point of that knowledge? And this is like the attitude he's starting to take. Later on, Imam Ahmad, he forgave all of them. But at that time, he's like, what good is your knowledge if you can't stand up for the truth? So now the only individual left with him is Muhammad ibn Nuh. Now they're being transported to see the Khalifa at that time. They're being transported to see the Khalifa. And the Khalifa at that time, Al-Ma'mun, this is like in his last year. Imam Ahmad is like, Oh Allah, I don't care what happens, but I don't want to see the face of Al-Ma'mun. Like this is the source of all the fitna. I don't want to lose my composure by meeting like a disgraceful individual like this. What happens? Imam Ahmad arrives into the town of Al-Ma'mun. Al-Ma'mun passes away that day. Before Imam Ahmad can, can meet with him. And the, the guards are freaking out because they heard Imam Ahmad make this dua. And they're like, is he going to make dua against us? You know, what's going to happen? So now Imam Ahmad is sent back. Baghdad, where he came from. And on the way back, what happens? Muhammad ibn Nuh passes away. So now you only have Imam Ahmed ibn Hanbal out of all of the scholars of Islam that are holding on to this position. Now when the second Khalifa comes in, Al Mu'tasim, when he comes in as the Khalifa, He wasn't an intellectual man, he wasn't a smart man, he was an army general, all he knew was war strategy. So he's like, look, whatever mandates my brother left behind, I'm just going to continue with those. So his brother left behind, you have to leave Ahmed and Ibrahim in charge, chief of justice, chief of police, leave them there, and whatever they do, you know, let them go ahead and do it. He wants to honor the legacy of his brother. So now. Ahmed ibn Abi Du'ad, as I said, this guy was like a walking shaytan. He continues this whole inquisition of testing the people with the Qur'an is created. And slowly but surely, as people are being threatened, everyone's changing their positions. And it's now becoming mainstream opinion in the caliphate that the Qur'an is created. And it's a, a very scary reality, subhanAllah. And the only person holding on to it, or to holding on to the truth at that time, is Ahmad ibn Hanbal. And every single day, someone is being sent in to debate Ahmed ibn Hanbal. And this person, as they're debating Ahmed ibn Hanbal, if Ahmed said something that they agreed with, they would remove some of the chains that Imam Ahmed was shackled in. But if they said that something that they disagreed with, they would increase the shackles upon Imam Ahmed. The shackles got so much by the end of all of the debates that Imam Ahmad, he was literally just collapsed. That he couldn't move, he was just, you know, uh, compounded with chain upon chain. That's how heavy it had become. Now when they saw that Imam Ahmad wasn't willing to compromise his position, they started lashing him. And the lashings were so severe that every day they would lash him till he would pass out. How long did this lashing last for? 30 months, 30 months every single day he's being lashed till he passes out. And people are like, you know, what is wrong with this man? Like why won't he just compromise and just get out of this predicament? Imam Ahmad would not compromise because he knew that if he compromised his position, that's literally the end of Islam, which led to Yahya ibn Ma'een. Remember his friend? Him saying that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala saved Islam twice. Once through Abu Bakr radiallahu anhu in anhu the wars of Riddah, and the second time through Ahmed ibn Muhammad when he held his stance against the Quran being created. Like that's how difficult this fitna was. That's how difficult this fitna was. So now the time of al Mu'tasim eventually comes to an end, and a new Khalifa comes into play. Al-Wathiq. Al-Wathiq He's a very sensible guy. He's not religious, but he's sensible. He tells Ahmad, look, I have no issue with you. If you can change your position, I would prefer that. But if you're not willing to change your position, I will let you go on the condition that you get out of this land, right? I cannot have a figure like you out in the open and there be like a revolt against the Abbasid Caliphate. I cannot handle that but also I'm going to recognize that what my predecessors did was unjust to you, and it wasn't right. So Imam Ahmad he's given a set of clothes, and he's sent home to pack his bags. What does Imam Ahmad do? He gets home, the clothes that he received in prison, takes them off, sells them, gives the money away in charity, and puts on his own clothes. (laughs) <laughs> I'm telling you, next level man, next level subhanAllah. But Imam Ahmad rahimahullah, he decides not to leave. But what he decides to do is be very, very discreet. So he stopped praying in the masjid at that time. He wouldn't go out of his house except to his close companions. So for a period of time, you know, that is it. That there's, there's no seeing Imam Ahmad, And people are like, you know, is this the end of his reign of the great scholar of Islam? What is going to happen? But what happens? At that time, a new Khalifa comes into play, and that is Al-Mutawakkil. When Al-Mutawakkil comes, everything changes. What changes very drastically? Ahmed ibn Abi Du'ad and Ibrahim, the Chief Justice and the Chief of Police, they're removed from their positions. They're publicly humiliated and disgraced. Their wealth is taken away, and Ahmed ibn Abi Du'ad, he becomes paralyzed. How does he end up dying? Disc- like, excreting upon himself, that is the state that he died in. Like this is the punishment that Allah Subh'anaHu Wa Ta-A'la gave him at the end, being completely humiliated and disgraced by putting Imam Ahmad through his persecution, putting the Ummah through the persecution, that was the, the compensation that uh, Allah Subh'anaHu Wa Ta-A'la gave him. When the announcement came to Imam Ahmad ibn Hanbal that you know, Ahmad ibn Abi Du'ad had passed away, how do you think Imam Ahmad responded? You would think that someone has persecuted you and put you through all this punishment and pain, you would rejoice that Alhamdulillah, you know, that it's over. But Imam Ahmad, he says that he is someone that I had forgiven long ago, and Allah can deal with him as He pleases. Now was his response, he let it be. And as Imam Ahmad rahimahullah, got older, people would always ask, you know, do you have any resentment towards the caliphate, do you have any resentment towards the scholars? And he said these are matters that are now between them and Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, and I don't hold anything in my heart towards them. And this is like courage, man. The true courage of Imam Ahmad and Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala knows best. The physical aspect was bearing the, the the lashes of every day being lashed till you pass out. But the stronger, more difficult component is that when your companions abandon you, when your ummah abandons you, when your, you know, government is against you and they're persecuting you, like how do you not hold it against them? So to find it in yourself, to forgive them, and not take anything from them, even as compensation, like that takes courage. And that is where the true strength of Imam Ahmad is really shown as the Imam of Ahl-Sunnah, in his ability to forgive his opponents, and his ability to forgive those that wronged him. And this is something that needs to be remembered. That, you know, we're all going to be in a situation from time to time where we will wrong others, and others will wrong us. And we need to find it in ourselves, that if we want to be forgiven by Allah, if we want to be forgiven by the people. we have to forgive others as well. We have to forgive others as well. Now Imam Ahmad Rahimullah, he never actually recovered from his persecution. like I said, he was punished so severely that every day he would you know pass out from the, from the pain, pass out from the punishment so as he's getting older, now he's 77 years old, towards the end of his life, he's in Baghdad, and he's gotten so weak that his sons have to help him in everything. He needs to go to the bathroom, his sons are helping him. And there are two like, powerful incidents before he passes away that I, that I want to share with you. So his son Salih said, I would sleep beside him at night. When he needed something, he would shake me awake, and I would give it to him. Once he said to me, give me the book which contains the hadith of Ibn Idris from Layth from Tawus, where it says that he would hate moaning out of pain. I got it and I read it to him. And my father did not utter a single moan except on the night that he died." This story, if you understand it properly, Imam Ahmad is looking for motivation on not to complain from the pangs of death. When an individual is about to die, you know, they go through a severe amount of pain, especially if you're going through a natural death. Right, these are the pangs of death. The Prophet ﷺ himself talks about, you know, the sakarat of mouth. This is what Imam Ahmad is going through. But he's looking for a motivation of not to moan, not to show any agony on his face. What is it going to motivate him? Well, he remembers narrating a hadith. So he tells his son, go and find the book that has this hadith and read it to me. And his son reads it to him. And he said that my father did not mo- moan or show any agony throughout his pain up and until the very last day. Meaning as long as he was able to be patient, he was patient. And this is something phenomenal. At that time, Imam Ahmad, he would try to revise his notes as much as possible. And people who were visiting him, they used to come and say, you know, even in this state, ya Ahmad, you're going to continue studying? and he says my ink pot will be buried with me. Meaning that the pen that I write with is going to be buried with me. Now, eventually, people start hearing that Imam Muhammad is going to pass away. So everyone wants to come and show their regards and show their respects to Imam Muhammad. And they start gathering around his house. And they would come, you know, group by group till there was no space left in his house. And there's so many people gathering that they're causing like a traffic blockade in the streets. So the family decided that, you know what, we're just going to shut the doors. We're not going to take any more guests. So a day or two before his death, he said with great difficulty, go outside and bring the children to me. All the children that are there, he says, bring them to me. The children were admitted and he let them come close and he scruffed their hair, meaning he patted their, their hands over, his, over their heads, and his, eyed, and his eyes flooded with tears at that time. Why is Imam Ahmad doing that? These are the orphan children. And the Prophet said that whoever wants to soften his heart, let him rub the head of the orphan child. So it's as if Imam Ahmad rahimallah, knew that his death is imminent, and he wants to soften his heart. Why? لا ينفع مال ولا بنون that on that day, your wealth and children will not avail you except for the man that comes with a sound heart. And that is what Imam Ahmad wanted to achieve. So when do you think Imam Ahmad died? After praying Salat Alisha, isha his son is holding him up. He refused to pray sitting down. His son had to hold him up so that he could pray salatul Aisha, isha And he says, let me lay down to rest. And he passed away in that state. He didn't wake up for Fajr. So Jummah time comes and it, you know it has been found out that Imam Muhammad <clears throat> has, has passed away and people have gathered up in the hundreds of thousands. I want to read this to you. He says that for the first time in the history of Baghdad, the vast majority of Masajid did not have Asr Salah prayed. The Masajid didn't pray Asr Salah. Why? Because they're all at the janazah of Imam Muhammad ibn Hanbal. The Khalifa al-Mutawakkil mobilized a team of 20 people to estimate the numbers in attendance. And he reported that there were between 600,000 and one and a half million men, along with 60,000 women. These are the amount of people that showed up to his janazah. Now, when you study, like intricate detailed aqidah, you have this very famous statement by the Salaf. They used to say that the difference between us and the people of innovation is the janazah. What did that mean? That means that the people of Ahl-Sunnah, when they would pass away, people would show up in hordes, like the hundreds of thousands. Whereas the people of innovation, when they would pass away, hardly anyone would show up. Imam Ahmad, look at the numbers, just the women 60,000, men, approximately up to one and a half million. When Ahmad ibn Abi Dawood, du'ad passed away, how many people were at his janaza They said we couldn't even count five, because the Imam had to be there to lead the Salah, and then four people just decided to show up. And that is the, the, that statement of Ahl al-Sunnah versus Ahl bidah being you know, implemented that Ahlul Sunnah will always have the larger Janazis. Now this was because of of multiple reasons that Imam Ahmad, he made a contribution to hadith, made a contribution to fiqh, he was a living example of what asceticism should look like, he was a living example of what our relationship with the Quran, our relationship with Salah, our relationship with fasting should look like, and then on top of that he was the vanguard of the Sunnah, he was the one that made the conscious decision that I will not let Islam fail, I will not let the ummah be abandoned, and I'm going to take it upon my shoulders to make sure that this innovation doesn't become mainstream. And this is like a turning point in history, subhanAllah, that if you think about it, that had Imam Muhammad compromised on this position, and this became the official doctrine of the ummah, we may not know the deen that we know right now. Like This is like how pivotal of a moment it was. That is how huge it was, subhanAllah. And that is how Imam Ahmad passed away on the 12th of al-Awwal in the year 241. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, have mercy upon him, forgive him for his sins. Allahumma ameen. You know, with that, uh, the, the series comes to an end. And it's a, a very, you know, bittersweet ending. But I shared this last night in terms of the principles of fiqh, what we learned. And I also want to share a conclusion now in terms of the personalities that we discussed. We discussed these personalities not just for the sake of being entertained, not just for the sake of coming to the masjid on a Friday night. But we discussed these personalities in hopes that we're going to bring about change in ourselves and in our communities. Each of these imams had a particular contribution. Each of these imams were very relevant to their times. Each of their imams understood that they had it upon themselves to stand up for this deen. And Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala chose them through their hard work, through their sincerity, through their piety, that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala allowed them to be remembered. And that is what we need to remember from their legacies. That yes, they were amazing individuals, but at the end of the day, they were also human beings. And Allah leaves these examples behind for us. Because we need to be able to relate to human beings. We need to strive for a higher standard. And we get motivated and empowered when we see other people capable of it. Now, no one is asking us to become the next Abu Hanifa, or Malik, or Shafi'i, or Ahmad. No one is asking us that of us. What is being asked of all of us is let us take our religious education more seriously. Let us study the deen more. Let us read the Quran more. Let us study the Sunnah more. Let us study the Sirah more. Let us fast more. Let us pray more. And do it gradually. Build upon it. Don't take upon everything at one time. Do everything gradually. And build upon it. Have a system for yourself where you increase. And you'll notice that if you have these lofty aspirations and these high goals, even though we may not achieve their level, we can become very, very close. And we can become just as relevant to our times as they were to their times. I've mentioned time and time again, that when you look at the challenges they went through, they stood up in the face of those challenges. We need to do the exact same thing. As the Muslim Ummah is confronted by the left and the right, through terrorism and radicalization and secular liberalism, the religious identity that is meant to be in the middle is being lost to both sides. People that are completely losing their faith due to the right and people that are completely compromising on their faith due to the left and this is where people like yourselves that are going to become inshallah specialized the best of the best in your field if you can complement that with religious knowledge inshallah this deen will be safe but if you don't complement it with religious knowledge then I am fearful genuinely fearful not for my grandchildren but for the generation of my own children, what Islam will look like for them? Will we be able to recognize Islam at that time if we do not stand up to the challenges that exist today? Right? So, this is just a reminder, inshallah, that if you leave with anything, try to leave with trying to be a better person who has a congruent personality of his religion and his profession and excels in both of them. That's what we want to see. May Allah Subh'anaHu wa Ta-A'la grant us the tawfiq to do so. Forgive us for our sins and shortcomings. Allahumma ameen. Allahu wa, wa sallam wa ala Muhammad wa, ala alihi wa, sahbihi wa sallam wa 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 wa